Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned into another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Thank you for joining us. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special show for you. Bob Dylan, the most influential singer-songwriter of our time, has released his 39th studio album, Rough and Rowdy Ways, released June 19, 2020, on Columbia Records. And we are joined by Clinton Halen. He is the foremost Bob Dylan scholar in the world. He is a prolific writer on many musical subjects, but a number of books on Bob Dylan, including Bob Dylan Behind the Shades, widely regarded as the definitive Dylan biography. So it's a great honor to interview a real authority on music and a great writer I've enjoyed very much. Thank you so much for being here. I'm very happy to be there. How are things in England? Uh, Strange, as you can imagine. (laughs) I mean, I, I was in New York when everything went nuts, and uh, I had to get out very quickly. I think I was on the last flight to Dublin when they were closing the airspace. So, uh, so yeah, so yeah, it's been it's been very strange. But um, weirdly enough, I had about ten weeks worth of writing to do on yet another Dylan book when I got back from New York, and so I just. I was going to go into isolation anyway, so uh, so in that sense, it's been a good thing. So uh, I just, you know, shut myself away for 10 weeks, so so that was fine. You've written so much about Bob Dylan. What would you say it is about Dylan that fascinates you so much? Uh, Well, a part of it is just being alive at the same time. I mean, you know, there's... You know, we're, I've said many times, we're very fortunate to be experiencing this in real time. You know, no matter how how great the critics and the historians and the scholars to come will be in discussing Dylan's work, the one thing that they can never get back to is living it in real time. You know, so uh, I'm sure, like you, on Friday morning, to have the chance to sit down and hear Bob Dylan's 39th album, you tell me, for the first time, and to just sit there and think, this is happening in real time. You know, there's there's millions of people around the world who are listening to this together. And that's a, that's an experience that nobody going forwards will, will have again. You know, uh, part of the excitement of it is, is the fact that one can re- research this material and one can examine the life whilst being a contemporary whilst being one of the people that he's writing for yeah and uh you know if you're a shakespeare scholar you can't do that <laughs> yeah, yeah. well i have to say you're very perceptive because when i was listening to the album for the first time i did think about you because i knew we were going to do this interview and it made me curious given that you're the historian, given that you write so much about Bob Dylan, do you think that you listen to Bob Dylan's music in a different way than most people do? Um, well, I mean, you know, the problem is that I listen to everything in a super critical way, you know, or, or so my wife tells me. 
<laughs> you know, like, you know, wh- why can't you just listen to, you know, whatever it is or watch whatever it is? And, and I can't, you know, I can't watch a TV program without going, that wouldn't have happened. That isn't the way it would have been, you know, that kind of thing. So I've always had that, you know, it's just, you know, a friend of mine, a very great guitarist, uh, he used to be in the only ones, John Perry, once said to me, is there anything about which you don't have an opinion? And I took that as a compliment, you know, I don't, you know, but it is, you know, it is difficult for me to sit and listen to an album and just let it wash over me, particularly if it's somebody that I'm passionate about. So, and, you know, with Dylan, obviously people get obsessed with the words and the meaning of the words. Sometimes they can't just let it go. They can't, they can't just say, I like the way that that sounds. They have to, you know, they have to know what it means. And uh, I, I, I'm guilty of that as well. But, uh, but you know, that's, you know, one should always, one should always appreciate the things that one is exposed to on, on a critical level. You know, one should question everything, including who's president, you know. <laughs> well, given that it had been so long since there was an original album of, of Dylan tunes, of, of songs that he wrote himself, how excited were you this time around to listen? Well, obviously, one of the one of the profound thoughts that we all have now when we hear a new Bob Dylan album, and I had similar thoughts when Tempest came out, is is this the last time? You know, obviously, one of the things that you're you're sitting there, and the guy's seventy nine years old. I mean, it's, you know, it's if 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 it takes him another eight years to write another ten songs. And he's 87, you know, are we really, really going to hear a Bob Dylan album of original songs again? So, you know, that's, that's a key thought, you know, with, with, as, with the passage of time, that is this it, you know? So, and obviously that's something that preoccupies Dylan because the album is replete with, uh, intimations of mortality, shall we say, you know? Because you know he's he's more aware of it than any of us. You know he's the one that gets up in the morning and <laughs> you know the legs playing up, and he doesn't feel so great. And you know he's looking at his tour schedule and thinking, oh shit, I've got to be in Austria tomorrow. <laughs> you know, so of course we're all thinking that. We're all thinking, you know, is, is this can this really be the end? So that that's bound to colour one's uh, viewpoint. You know. So, with that said, how do you think that this album, Rough and Rowdy Ways, how do you think it compares to his other albums from this century over the last, I guess that would be since, would that be Time Out of Mind that came out in 2001? No, Love and Theft. Love and Theft. How do you think it compares to the albums from the last 20 years or so? Well, of course, one of the things I do, I can't speak for anyone else, but one of the things I do every time there's a new Dylan album, uh, certainly a new Dylan album of original songs, after I've listened to it two or three times, the, the, the thing that I always do is immediately go and play the previous album in its entirety. And in fact, I did that this morning. Just because, it, of course, it completely colors what you thought about the previous record. So you think you have a point of view about Tempest, and then now you have another album to sandwich it between. Now it's got bookends. 
you need to go back and listen to that album, which is now coloured by this album. So, I mean, we've had what I would describe as four proper studio albums in that 20-year period. I mean, Together Through Life was a soundtrack album. Uh, it's a very different kind of record and seems to be recorded in much more of a hurry. The um, Love and Seth, Modern Times, Tempest and uh, Rough and Rowdy Ways are very much of a piece. You know, there's no, it's not like the, the Dylan that went from Blonde on Blonde to John Wesley Harden to Nashville Skyline in the space of two years. The template has been established. Love and Seth very much established it. And uh, he's been mining it for, for the last two decades and is obviously happy to be in that place. So, so yeah, there's differences. Uh, there's a lot less narrative material than there was on Tempest. It's much more uh, a kind of washing over you series of images just hitting you one after the other rather than a, than a story song. But they're still very much of a piece. You know, the, the four albums really need to be seen as, as a totality. Uh, and because I suspect that this probably will be the last one, you know, they become very much a unit. And so you can go from Mississippi, which I consider the starting point for Love and Theft, to, uh, to Key West. <laughs> and that's a body of work. I mean, there's, there's this incredible body of work that came before that, but one could sort of put that aside. I treat, I, I think Dylan in the 21st century is a very different person from Dylan in the 20th century. Yeah. And of course, all of the albums have their flaws and all of the albums, I think I would be right in saying are too damn long. <laughs> hmm. I wish you'd get back to releasing 45 minute albums, but then I would say exactly the same of Neil Young or Van Morrison or Richard Thompson, all of whom are equally guilty, perhaps more guilty. Uh, you know, I think it was Neil that started this by insisting on releasing 60-minute albums. You, you know, I think as we get older, we all need editors. <laughs> you know, more than we think, because we all get set in our ways and we all think we don't need anyone to tell us Actually, you could chop a couple of verses out of that one, Bob. You know, I mean, obviously, Murder Most Foul created an enormous amount of interest because of when it came out and the circumstances in which it came out. But it should have been pruned. It's too long. You know, it's too long to be a song, in my opinion. How difficult has it been for you to capture Bob Dylan in your writing when you consider his elusiveness and when you consider his mystique, all the mystique that is around him? Well, the answer is unsuccessfully. <laughs> As I said earlier, you know, I had to write what was actually the third section of, of the next book. So I'm gratified that you would describe Behind the Shades as a definitive biography, but I'm sorry to tell you it's being wiped from the body of work it's being replaced i uh i am i've finished and delivered the first volume of a two-volume biography of dylan which is going to be when it's finished five hundred thousand words so that's about well behind the shades is about two hundred thousand words so uh and uh maybe 
It may even say on the front cover, author of the once definitive behind <laughs> the shade, because he's moved the goalposts again. You know, I mean, the obviously the the fact that there is now a Dylan archive in Tulsa and the sheer treasures that that archive stands to reveal. And of course, I wrote Behind the Shades before the internet. There's a scary thought. Think about it. You know, <laughs> you know that. You know, it needs to be. It needs to be gone at again. So yeah, he he keeps moving. He keeps moving aside. I mean, God willing, I'm going to outlive him. So <laughs> maybe I'll have the final say, but I doubt it. You know. <laughs> you know, he's he is a moving target, and I've said that time and time again. And I like that. I like the fact that there's, you know, I mean, I don't think Harold Bloom is going to stop writing about Shakespeare because he's written a, a, an obscenely large, unreadable book about him. You know, he'll write another obscenely large, unreadable book about him. So, you know, hopefully I'm a bit more readable. Hopefully I've got a few more things that people don't know to say. But yeah, I have to keep playing catch up. And I, I, as I think we all do. Well, working our way back to this recent album, I know that there's been so much that has been said about Bob Dylan's voice. If I could insert my humble opinion, I think his singing is really good on this album. And I'm curious to hear from you. Do you think that at all his singing was perhaps made better by this foray that he took into recording classic songs, the standards, as they say, from the American Songbook? Um, a couple of people have said that they think that the new album is stronger than the last couple of original albums because of that, because of the fact that he's he's kind of immersed himself in the great American Songbook. I don't personally hold that view. I think the the fact that the album, in my opinion, sounds better than than Tempest and Together Through Life uh, is is down to a far more basic situation, which in a sense has nothing to do with him, which is the re-employment of Chris Shaw, who is the engineer on this album. And Chris Shaw was the engineer on Love and Theft, and he was the engineer on Modern Times. And uh, he was <laughs> let go, shall we say, which was a mistake. He's no longer a young cult, but he is a very good engineer and he has a very good understanding of how to record Dylan. And uh, I think he should take a lot of credit for how the album sounds. And I haven't spoken to him or conversed with him about his return. I have no inside information as to whether he is personally responsible for the fact that it's a more, a more melodic, a more analog sounding record. But, uh, but that to me is the more likely explanation. I'm not saying that he hasn't been influenced by the songbook thing, but you know he's he's been doing the American songbook material in concert at sound checks and so forth for the last forty years. So I don't think he discovered Sinatra in two thousand and twelve somehow. Uh, well, what did you think of those three albums of of American songbook songs? Uh, I'm not a fan. I, oh. You know, I I don't I I don't mean that I. I think they're bad, you know. I, I, I don't think they're bad records. You know, they're not Christmas in the Heart, which <laughs> is a bad record. But, uh, you know, I have all those Sinatra albums. You know, I grew up, my parents 
were big fans of Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra, and I I was dragged along to go and see those people when they played. I was lucky enough when I was I saw Tony Bennett when I was twelve, and that was a great thing at the time. I had no idea who the hell the guy was, and uh, so you know I know those records. My mum listened to Ella Fitzgerald and you know all those those great singers. So why no disrespect to Dylan, but maybe if he'd have made the album in 1981 when he was a truly great singer, as good as anybody out there. But why would I listen to Dylan doing some enchanted evening? (laughs) You know, I can think of five better versions off the top of my head and, you know, by people those songs were written for, you know, I don't begrudge him making the records, but I wouldn't listen to them myself by choice. Not because uh, I don't think he has a right to record that material, but simply because horses for courses. I wouldn't, just that I wouldn't listen to Bob covering Deep Purple songs. Because <laughs> he's not Ian Gillen either. I wouldn't listen to him covering Frank Sinatra songs by choice. You know, I've listened to the albums, but they're not albums I go back to. Interesting. Well, on this album, Rough and Rowdy Ways, is there a song that has stood out to you from listening to the album? Uh, the two songs that really stand out to me at this point, and obviously we're only, please, please remember, it's only a week. I've only had a week to live with it. But uh, the two that stand out for me are uh, my version of you and uh, and Key West. You know, I love them. I think they're really, I think they're major pieces of work. I think what he does is is uh, really works. And I thought I, I can see a lot of thoughts gone into those two songs and they have a certain originality to them. You know, they, they don't sound like anything else, you know. So those are the two that I go back to at the moment. But, you know, this, I mean, I, I like Black Rider. I think that has some real promise, uh, maybe a song that's going to grow on me. I'm probably I'm probably I probably don't need to hear any more jump blues by Bob even if they're good <laughs> you know an album of pledging my times i really don't need in 2020 so those are probably not the songs i'm going to go back to but as i said earlier you know there's one of the things that i grew up with and i'm sure you grew up with is that in the vinyl era you were forced to release tw- albums that couldn't be longer than 40 minutes you know and actually that applied a constraint on the artist so that they had to force their thinking into 40-minute sort of music. And I think that was a force for good. I think ever since that that limitation was removed, I think that uh, uh, some people have run with that a little too over-enthusiastically and insist on, really, on jamming the absolute limit of uh, CD listening time and uh, I don't think that's particularly a, a, been a good thing. I don't, and I'm not, as I say, I'm not singling out Bob. I think that applies to many, many artists these days. Uh, to, just too many albums that I put on, I just go, you know, this is too long. This is, you're, you're pushing it too far. You know, some of these songs could have been held over. Some of these songs aren't good enough. You know, I mean, you mentioned that uh, it's been eight years since Dylan released an album of original songs. Well, it's been 12 years since Maria McKee issued an album of original songs, and I'm a huge fan of Maria's work. But again, the album that came out, that just came out, 
is it's another seventy minute album. It's just it, it don't it should be should be twenty minutes shorter. It would be a better album for being twenty minutes shorter, even if you've had twelve years to write it. You know, so, but you know, they, you know, in case we forget, for a seventy-nine-year-old man to write Key West is astonishing, absolutely astonishing. You know, I can't think of anybody who's come close to producing a work that majestic at that age. It is really something. And as you said, you, you said that you thought this would possibly be the last album, uh, the last studio album of original songs. Knowing as much as you do about Bob Dylan, if you had to guess, do you have any idea about what could be forthcoming? Maybe not another album, but what do you possibly see him doing? Well, I mean, as Bob said himself, Every day above ground is a good day. I mean, none of us have, you know, that uh, God-given right to assume, oh, I've got another 10 years to do this. So I think it will be impossible to talk about what Bob can, can achieve going forwards because none of us know. None of us know. I don't mean that, you know, he doesn't have ideas. He doesn't have ambitions. We all do. But, but whether he's going to be given the time to do that, that's that's not in his hands, and he knows as well as I do whose hands it is in. So, you know, you get up, you do your work. Obviously, Bob has diversified enormously in the last 20 years. We talked about the albums over the last 20 years, but let's not forget, he made a major movie in that time, a totally underrated movie. I think one of his best pieces of work, Aston Anonymous. What a great film. He's published his autobiography. He's had major painting exhibitions. He's had a, his own radio show for three seasons. You know, he's, he, he has uh, achieved ambitions that he personally had in that time, and I'm sure he's, he still has a list of things that he'd like to get done. But, yeah, who knows? I think I'm right in saying... I think P.G. Woodhouse was, what, 94 when he died. If Bob gets as long as, as Plum, then there's going to be more work. You know, Woodhouse published a dozen novels in those last 14 years of his life. So, you know, uh, we might be lucky, but I'm grateful for everything. You know, I'm grateful for being in myself, but I'm also, you know, I, I, you know, I mean, the the single overriding emotion on getting the album last Friday was gratitude that we got another album. Absolutely. I was reading your book, and I want to tell all the listeners out there, for those of you who are fans of bootlegs, this is a great book. It's called Bootleg, The Secret History of the Other Recording Industry, and really, really great book. When I think of bootlegs, I inevitably think of Bob Dylan. What do you think Bob Dylan has done for the world of bootlegs? Well, it's, I mean, it's more a case of, that Dylan was one of those artists who came along at a time when the the way that the industry that he worked in worked at the time and the amount of music that he created, it couldn't be assimilated within the normal recording industry. You know, there, there sort of had to be an overspill. There was just too much good stuff. 
And in a sense, the bootleg series over the last 10 years has kind of had to take up the slack for that very reason. I mean, if you look at, if you actually typed out all the material that's been made official, uh, officially available in the last 10 years, archival material, it's, it, <laughs> there isn't a body of work of that stature by anybody with, uh, that's a contemporary. I mean, I'm just talking about the material that's been issued in the last 10 years. Uh, obviously, a lot of that has been sweeping up the more famous bootleg material that we grew up with. I mean, obviously, the Manchester 66 concert has now been <laughs> turned into a 32 CD box set, for which I must take a large part of the blame. The uh, basement tapes has finally, you know, every last scrap pretty much has been swept up, you know. But, you know, at the time that the bootleg industry happened, there was there was all this work and it wasn't available to people in a, in an easy way. You know, I mean, in 1969, uh, most people didn't have tape recorders. Most people didn't have tape machines. If you wanted to hear the Dylan Manchester 66 concert, the way you, you would have to go to one of your independent record shops and buy an under the counter album. But, um, you know, it's that whole idea of demand being created because of something that has that that is outside the norm, you know. If again, if I can use the analogy of Shakespeare, you know, the reason that that so many of Shakespeare's plays were bootlegged, let's not forget, I think what nineteen of his plays were bootlegged in his lifetime, was because there was a demand for it, and there was not a demand for most others. You know, most of the other plays of the era weren't bootlegged, and you know, there were equally great playwrights out there ben johnson christopher marlowe but that demand was there and finally it had to be met and if it upset bill tough luck and ditto with dill uh, with dylan you know if bob didn't like the bootlegs and he certainly didn't tough luck you know, you know if you're not going to put the basement tapes out someone else is going to put it out <laughs> you know. Well, for all of our listeners out there, is there anything coming out in the near future from you, Clinton Halen, that they should be aware of? Uh, well, as I say, I have volume one of <laughs> The Double Life of Bob Dylan, which should hopefully be out next May. I mean, uh, Bob's... Next May. Bob's 80 next May. And, uh, you know, every 10 years I seem to <laughs> feel a need to, to go back and look at his life. So the first volume, uh, which is called The Man in Me, should be out. It's Little Brown in America, so, you know, it's a big publisher. It should be, hopefully, widely available. And it's big. Uh, you know, it's going to be, uh, what, 800 pages, that. So it's uh, it's it's going to be, uh, it's, it's a doorstopper. <laughs> and that only goes up to Plum the Track. So that's the first volume. So I cover 1941 to 1970, January 75, in that in in those 260,000 words. So yeah, it's it's for it's for Dylan fans. Let's put it like that. But it's you know, it's if you if if you love Dylan and you want to figure out how that story unfolded, there are a lot of revelations because just I've been lucky enough to spend like ten weeks at Tulsa over four different trips over the last two years. And I was obviously hoping to get back there 
this spring, but that hasn't happened, obviously, for obvious reasons. And uh, there is extraordinary material there. And uh, when the Dillon Center finally opens, uh, which hopefully will be next year, so people you know can just visit the center, it, it really will blow people's minds. You know, the, the the material that they have is extraordinary. I mean, the manuscripts, the audio, the video, just the scale of documentation is something that is very, very hard to imagine. And I've I've worked with big archives in the past, not necessarily uh, popular music archives, other archives, and uh, I, I can't really think of anything comparable, not for a single artist. Lots to look forward to. Yeah. Something that I've noticed that has come up again and again in this interview is you're a person with a tremendous amount of gratitude. What is the best thing about being Clinton Halen? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a that's an interesting question. I've never been asked that one before. <laughs> I, to, to be honest, the, the best thing is to get up in the morning and to do what you love to do. So... I hope that Bob can get up in the morning and make, and feel I can make music. You know, I get to get up in the morning and write about music. I'm not gifted enough to be a great musician, but I can write about great music. And to be honest, that's always what I wanted to do. Uh, what I want to do, you know, I'm an historian by training. I have two history degrees, so I have that interest. I'm interested in archives. I'm interested in history and I'm interested in popular culture. So I found a way to put the three things together. How possible that will be for people in the future, I don't know. The internet will change everything from that point of view. So to be able to do that outside academia, and I make that important qualification because it was a conscious choice. I walked away from academia. Academia did not walk away from me. I don't think that that is the place where the best work is done on popular culture. Across the board, not just Dylan, across the board. Most of the best work on popular culture is done outside academia. And to be able to do that and to be able to eat and have a house, a shelter over one, uh, a roof over one's head, to be able to do all of that, I'm not sure how practical that's going to be going forward for the next generation and generation after. But thankfully, at the time when I was able to do it, I'm 60 now, uh, I've been able to do it for over 30 years and make a living and I hope produce a body of work, you know, and uh, that's what I'm grateful for. I always like to end the interview. I just give the guest the microphone. We have listeners all over. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in, totally open-ended? I mean, just simply that, to enjoy what you do and to embrace the possibilities that all of this new technology gives you and to embrace it in a way that is enhancing, not in a way that diminishes all of our lives and the tremendous opportunities you know i mean the ability to be creative now the opportunities to be creative now are greater than they've ever been in the history of mankind and i actually think they're being underused i don't think i don't think that people use the technology in a creative way i think people are are pushed 
in a direction that they that they should think about whatever it is making money making a living making and you know conforming rather than saying i can do something with this that will actually enhance my life and embrace it you know that's all i would say mr halen an honor to talk to you thank you very much for doing this interview no absolute privilege paul and uh yeah keep up the good work yourself all right, sir. Well, have a wonderful day, or evening, I should say. Evening in my case, yes. yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cheers, Paul. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. Hosted, written, and produced by Paul Leslie. Intro theme song, Alexander's Ragtime Band, written by Irving Berlin, performed by Dan Barrett. Outro scatting G-Things, improvised, performed, and produced by John Goodwin. Until next time. Goodbye.